oh, how grateful I am for technologically astute 21st century people. I told Amanda that my first telephone, may have been Ashby's too, was a wooden box on the wall with two bells and a crank. And the operator's name was Mabel. <laughs> not, not making this up. And, you know, this was before we had television, so if you wanted a soap opera, you picked off the uh, earpiece, and you never said anything in Red Hill and North Garden. You didn't want everyone else to know in Red Hill and North Garden, but it was very entertaining. Thank you for technological astuteness. And thank you for being too friendly. That, that really is a great virtue. I, I'm going to take this back to RISAC. I mean, we're pretty darn friendly. Yeah, we, we really need a surfeit of friendliness, and you all can send hypodermics of it. <laughs> I'm incredibly grateful to Wes, not just for having me today, but for all you've been in my life and in the life of the movement. Uh, Amanda and Mary are absolutely wonderful to work with, and they are two of 20 reasons I wish my law were not so very full-time. That job really is, eh, I, I cannot be active at a national level at this point, and that's a great sadness. But also, stemming back to Wes's history, the presence you had in the struggle for equal rights at your formation was part of my formation, because George Beecham, was there at every leaders' conference that helped train us new leaders, as well as at Erickson. So we progressed along being nourished by the, the wonderful roots that you put down in terms of the struggle for justice here and worldwide. Today, ah, this talk has morphed since July into something probably about an hour and a half, however. <laughs> said the angel unto them, fear not. <clears throat> I made sure before I came that you all had that most vital liturgical piece that any ethical congregation should have visible, a cock. <laughs> so I will keep an eye on the cock. And I will share with you seven vital questions, I think, that are central to the issue of climate change sustainability justice, ethical relationships, and I also have a bibliography that I'm developing that I really am eager for each of you to feed into. I was just looking through you all's bookshelf, and it's stupendous. You know, you have the great ethical treasures there commingled with other really, really vital stuff like Zaitun. How many have you read Zaitun, the incredible saga of injustice and horror after during and after Katrina. Anyway, I hope that this bibliography can morph with others as a resource for ethical action committees to look more deeply into why we're having such a devil of a time making progress in this country and this world. We'll probably never agree on, you know, broad, radical kind of propositions, but we can certainly go more deeply even than we do in looking at what's happening and why. Seven questions are this. For development to be ethical, must it absolutely insist on meeting the material needs of every child of Earth? Second, what are the connections between sustainability and development? Being shackled to GDP 
as the main moniker of growth. What's that doing to us in the world? Third, what are the barriers to fully sustainable and ethical development? Fourth, the intractability of racial injustice and inequality, the horrors of oppression of and exploitation of women. Are these very special cases of barriers we have to look more deeply into? Five, is war the worst failure of development? Don't we need to incorporate our understanding of conflict and building a culture of peace into the whole picture of what a humane developing world must be? Seven, how can we organize more broadly and strategically? You all have heard Joe Schumann. Joe swears, I hope you all have, swears that one of the best Adler quotes I'm still looking for is, ethicalizing is organizing. Still haven't found that citation, but it, it kind of has a ring, doesn't it? And finally, what is the essential deepening, broadening spiritual vision that impels us, that compels us, that draws us on? Seven questions. Now, that said, you know, the main thing I want to share with you is a story of non-development, of terrible, terrible neglect really radical neglect of the poorest people in New York as the horrible Hurricane Sandy struck us. First off, we knew it was coming at some point, eventually, I forget how many years the Army Corps of Engineers had said, you're on the target, if not on the bullseye. We were expecting a Category 3 hurricane at some point. We're overdue for it. And the flooding attendant to such a hurricane you know, was already projected. It was known. The city fathers and some mothers knew it. The billionaires, anyone know how many billion our mayor is worth? Want to hazard a guess? I googled the last time. It was 23 billion. Uh, no plan, sensibly. He's gotten high marks for evacuation, but like Mayor Nagin in New Orleans provided no buses, only criminal sanctions, he left I don't know how many hundreds of the sickest and most vulnerable in nursing homes then to suffer without power, without water. But how we up in the northern part of Manhattan and the Bronx got to know the worst of the worst is through my good buddy Ellen. Uh, my wife is here, and we'll admit that Ellen Isaacs is one of our oldest and dearest friends. I'm delighted my wife is here. By the way, she usually is the canary in the mine when I'm mumbling and you can't hear me. <laughs> you know, I'm a preacher and a lawyer, and I mumble. So I assume the sound's working, okay? But if it doesn't, raise your hand. She usually does. And I won't tell you you can be excused. You know, I'll just thank you for, for that feedback. Ellen is a doctor, lifelong almost, and was volunteering in an armory shelter in the Bronx uh, two or three days after Hurricane Sandy laid waste to our city. And she encountered an amazing guy named Errol Riley, who, you know, we don't usually give credit to heroes. He is one of those ethical heroes who emerged as a spokesperson and advocate for he counted 106 families who were flooded out of and then molded out of and frozen out of Far Rockaway and Coney Island. And these families had been sent first to York College where they were pretty humanely treated. 
and he thought had given all of their information to the city, human resources, and FEMA to be tracked, to be placed, to have their needs met, many of them on public assistance, some of them quite old, a good number of them single women with preschool children. And then in the dead of night, they were awakened, gong-like, and sent out of York College to the hill of the Franklin Armory in the Bronx, where Ellen met them. Ages commingled, all sleeping together, some pretty unmentionable things happening in the face of children, no medication, uh, and no idea where they would go subsequently. So, my friend Dr. Isaacs made good friends with Errol Riley, and our interfaith coalition, Congregations for Justice and Peace, began as small as we are to be a fundraising and advocate support group for these folks who then were sent down to holiday inns uh, in southern Manhattan, which are not bad places. I don't like paying what they charge, but they're, you know, pleasant, decent facilities, no cooking facilities, no food stamp places that they could actually buy food even if they could cook it, no budget for eating out, no medications. Pharmacies were refusing to fill orders that, you know, had disappeared in, in the flood uh, simply because insurance companies would not pay for them. Uh, and most of all, no case management. As I indicated, a number of people from those places were surviving on entitlements and Errol and we thought, okay, they had gotten all of the information about how to follow people who needed public assistance restored and needed referrals for low-income housing. Nothing. The Red Cross was helpful to the degree that they had resources, but then those resources dried up. The funding for fare cards dried up, so people couldn't even slip up to Harlem where food camp stamps are taken. And I've been away a week, and as far as I know, this horror is still obtaining. The point I'm making is that we react in ethical horror, that any of our sisters and brothers are treated this way. I would also suggest that we should share our fear that many of us, in fact any of us, could under some circumstances suffer in the same way. Because, in fact, climate change has changed. Most of the scholars and activists indicate Bill McKibben, chief among them, a few years ago. Anyone read his book, Earth? I recommend Earth simply because of its cumulative power of narrative, of the symptoms and causes of global climate change. The tipping point has been well, sadly, reached. And now we're in a period of compensation, Amelioration. I will not use the term resilience because that begs the question of sustainability. That begs the question of a much more prospective, comprehensive solution. Or, as my friend Finley, the great Unitarian Aryan African American of Chicago, once said, we are, uh, well, yeah, the most vulnerable, poor African American Latinos are on the target, but we're all on the bullseye. In any case, the first question that these horrors raise to me is whether or not we can envision a kind of development for New York, for the world, that takes into account the people who are suffering most with the fewest resources 
and historically most vulnerable. Universal, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we have in our sacred space at Riverdale Yonkers. It, many of you may have been in American colonial Anglican churches, and on one side of the pulpit, the Ten Commandments, and on the other side, the Lord's Prayer. We have the Declaration of Human Rights. And what is usually ignored is the Declaration not only, not only supports individual freedoms and liberties, but also guarantees as a right basic material needs like shelter, like health care, employment that's sufficient for, for decent well-being, and at least fundamental education. How are we faring here and worldwide? Bad. Won't even qualify it with an adverb. Really bad. Here in the richest developed nation, now there are 50 million who are barely surviving. Among them, my new friends, sisters and brothers from the Rockaways in Coney Island. And according to Tavis uh, Smiley, I, I had not heard of him before, but he started a movement. Are you familiar with him? Uh, according to him, about 100 million of the working poor here in this richest country are on the edge of bare survival. One out of three at risk. Extrapolate that to the world. Despite some improvement in some of the millennial development goals, um, maternal child health, delivery, uh, a terrible, terrible picture still exists and is getting worse because of the economic setback. About a billion of our sisters and brothers are compromised in terms of water, in terms of food. And the number that sticks and has done in my heart and mind forever is 22,000. Each and every day, according to UNESCO, and my guess is this has been expanded, if corrected, for some of the millennial accomplishments, 22,000 entirely preventable deaths occur worldwide, mainly of the young and the old, the most vulnerable, from waterborne uh, diseases like cholera in Haiti, from uh, poisoning of wells, the water table is rising in Bangladesh, so lead is coming into water. Uh, and from horrific malnutrition. Adrian Risch's incredible portrait of radical empathy speaks to the famine at, in the mid-1970s and 80s in sub-Saharan Africa, but also speaks to food compromise in the Bronx, in Westchester. We are aware of food banks running out, not just down, but out, and worldwide, absolutely, and connected to drought global warming, bad water, or too much water, as in Hurricane Sandy. Question two, sustainability and economic development. What, what are the connections there? How can the growth of gross domestic product as the chief index of well-being, how can that co coincide with a sustainable downgrading of greenhouse gases in particular? There are a number of resources there. Some of you may be aware of all of them. I recommend Joel Covell's Enemy of Nature, Jared Diamond's Collapse, really cheery titles, get the next title, Ian Hamilton's Requiem for a Species, Take Heart, Take Heart, Warfare. Ian Hamilton is an ethicist from Australia, and his is the most recent book published cataloging all of the horrors that are developing 
because of climate change. And of course, Bill McKibben's Earth, which marshals just an incredibly effective cumulative march of data about what has been done, what has been done to wreck the environment, how climate change is marching way past the tipping point, and defining some very practical steps many urban gardeners are taking, many locavores and others nationally are doing in terms of adapting to a new scene, uh, particularly in light of the horrible, horrible tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut. One thing that disturbs me about Bill McKibben, and you know, it's kind of just a small part of Earth, he says that we have to shift resources, certainly to developing local agriculture and to curtailing greenhouse houses. He also wanted to, wants to expand police forces because he does lack the vision of an egalitarian sharing of what we can produce, and he feels there will be more police needed in order to guard local gardening. Now, I love his work. I'm a member of 350.org. I've not had a time to talk with him. I'm not sure he'd have time to talk with me about that concern. But some of you may have read in the follow-up journalism from Newtown, Connecticut, that uh, Mr. Lanz's mother was not just a gun enthusiast, but that she was a gun enthusiast because she felt she had to protect her property, her very large home, her possessions. I don't think she was a bad person, and I certainly don't want to blame a victim. But she sadly appears to be representative of a kind of garrison gated culture, an individualist approach, which frankly I think would destroy us as a civilization in the image of anything we would call ethical. I feel horribly for everyone in Newtown. I wish they had had the heart to ring the bells, not just for the kids, but for the mother and even for the son. Can't blame them. But that was a sadness. And I'm delighted we're having the work here on gun safety and rallying for that in a very practical way. In any case, what are alternative prospects that really could work? Who is familiar with Mark Jacobson and Mark DeLucchi? I guess he pronounces it the Italian way. These are two engineers on the West Coast, one at Stanford, one at UC Davis, who have done a study I heard about on NPR, which really sounded terrific. Uh, the title of what they've published is called The World Can Be Powered by alternative energy using today's technology in between 20 and 40 years. Uh, and they say this could be done at costs comparable to conventional energy costs. But their caveat is our caveat, ethically, activistically, uh, prospectively, quote, converting will be a massive undertaking on the scale of moon landings. What is needed is the societal and political will to make it happen. Now, if anyone works for ExxonMobil, I'm not attacking you when I ask. Uh, why is not ExxonMobil adopting these guys' position as their new business model? Uh, what I've read is they're actually moving into fracking as to what they hope will be the answer to declining fossil fuels and prices. Uh, and that leads to question three, what are the barriers to fully sustainable ethical development? 
What are we mainly up against? Uh, multinational corporate domination that's been in the air since I was an activist in the 60s and the issue has been revived by Occupy people over the last year. You all had an Occupy Washington, I know, and you sent us one of the neatest kids I've ever met to Columbia. And now we're occupied, occupying together. This is really exciting. Uh, but the dominance of ExxonMobil, in neck and neck in size and wealth with the Russian conglomerates for energy and BP and GE and other solid world citizens. Uh, I like David Corton's analysis primarily of the dynamic of these multinationals. Some of you may know his living economics forum. And he has said that humans like us face a choice between two contrasting models for organizing our needs. The dominator model of empire and the partnership model of earth community. Now analytically, I think David is right on the mark. Politically, I don't know how the hell he expects to get there. I don't know if you've Googled his stuff. Uh, he came out of corporate culture and is one of the most idealistic public intellectuals I know, but he's proposing a 50% tax on advertising nationally to counteract all of the prevarications, distortions, and frankly lies that corporate culture uh, can you imagine Congress passing a 50% tax on anything, let alone what the corporations desperately depend on? Moreover, the full power of the United States government has supported U.S. corporations domestically and worldwide forever. Uh, a book I really strongly, we used to say in the Episcopal Church, urge you to read, mark, and inwardly digest. I like that phrase. It really says, you know, get in there and study the footnotes. The book is called Ideal Illusions, How the U.S. Government Co-opted Human Rights. It's by a scholar journalist named James Peck. And in incredible detail, it looks at the history of foreign policy, uh, Chamber of Commerce, I mean, Department of Commerce since 1948. And in the forward, quotes Dean Acheson, who was President Truman's Secretary of State, uh, talking to a bunch of businessmen and saying, you know, let's get on board here, guys. They were all guys then. Uh, we want to, quote, restructure the world to meet the needs of the capitalist system via the economic institutions designed to protect U.S. corporate power. Politicians are rarely that honest anymore, are they? <laughs> Actually, knew his grandson in college, and he was a pretty neat guy. And believe it or not, he's devoted his life to developing an automotive fix-it garage. He decided the world stage just was not for him, and I deeply respect him for that. He really serves a good need. The test case, or a terrible example of corporate dominance, I think, can be the country of Haiti. I don't know how closely you have followed the underdevelopment, misdevelopment, military occupation of, exploitation of Haiti, and looked to track the United States, British, French, and Canadian interests that they're serving. Uh, I would simply ask that you look to see whether our State Department is still trying to keep Haiti from raising minimum wage 
and still trying to break unions and still trying to enforce sweatshop conditions where people earn $3.50 a day in order to produce a suit that would sell at J.A. Bank for $500. That came over the internet after the earthquake a couple of years ago. Uh, and I want to email to Amanda uh, a petition, which is a growing healthcare and educational initiative to demand inoculation against cholera, beginning with all school children in Haiti, children in Haiti. Some friends of mine who go to Port-au-Prince regularly working with the teachers union have developed that incredible initiative that really may have some effect with health workers there and educators there. Question five, is war the worst failure of development? You don't often connect war, anti-war work with economic development, but I would ask you to think about where United States and NATO forces have bombed and strafed the most civilians since 1991. Where have these places been? They have been Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen. Where were these conflicts not about the control of oil and natural gas, about its flow, its pricing in competition with other nations? and their multinationals. There are a number of resources here to draw on Daniel Jurgen's immortal The Prize, which is really the Old Testament of, of oil analysis. But I urge you to Google Michael Clare, K-L-A-R-E. He is head of Peace Studies Department at Hampshire College and UMass and four others. And his book, Resource Wars, actually tracked uh, economic, geopolitical reasons for the invasion of Afghanistan. Most of us were not aware that the U.S. government and corporations were cheerfully negotiating with the Taliban for rights to build the TAPI, natural gasoline, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India pipeline for the incredible riches of natural gas in the, uh, in the Caspian region. And they did military maneuvers that track exactly the ones they used in the invasion, I think four or five months before the September 11 attacks. I'm not calling conspiracy here. I'm just saying that there is an economic, geopolitical reason for controlling Pakistan Afghanistan, even though Afghanistan has really mineral riches that have been discovered, but no energy riches. Where have these wars happened? that has not been connected with that most vital lifeblood flowing black through the veins of empire, oil and gas, where? Could these regional conflicts expand to World War III? The unthinkable. I suggest everyone read Paul Kennedy's The Rise and Fall of Great Powers and note that in five centuries, no world hegemonic power has ever ever graciously ceded that power to an emerging rival without huge conflict. The standoff of nuclear horror has kept us from the most obvious, horrible, civilization-destroying conflict, but the subsidiary conflicts have killed literally millions of people, counting in Southeast Asia, horrifically. Now Russia, China, the United States, India, Brazil, still Japan, are involved in trade wars 
which if you look at the military maneuvers that China and the U.S. are going through in the South China Sea, Australia, Philippines, the developments are really, really scary. How, with that and with the death of families by drones, have we given this administration a pass on the peace movement? I've done that, and I feel very bad about that. And I think we should no longer do that. Question six. How can we organize and ethicalize more broadly? I want you all to invite Frances Fox Piven here. We gave her the Elliott Black Award two years ago. Right? She is, I, I got Amanda's uh, permission to say this, she is the most kick-butt octogenarian <laughs> activist I know in my life. And she came to Rossack and she kicked butt all over the place, kicked butt, stirring the walls. She is an incredible intellectual activist. Uh, many of you have on your sacred shelf regulating the poor, which she and her husband Richard Cloward wrote in the early 70s about the horror then of public assistance and desistance and persistence and the way you know folks are terribly exploited by government as well as by private sector. Uh, what I've not touched on is the special role of race and gender, and I've suggested a few readings in that, and I've asked myself continually to be challenged by one of Karl Marx's positions. He, at the beginning of the Civil War, pointed out that Caucasian working people in England and the United States could never be free so long as Africans were enslaved. That dynamic of pull and push, both super profit extraction, which racist and sexist exploitation make possible, and also the divide and conquer strategy, which worked so horribly well in the South, where poor whites owned no slaves and yet flocked to the Confederate colors. Marx developed an analysis saying that this was really endemic in capitalist development, and Eric Williams, the great scholar politician, not so great a politician, wonderful scholar, developed that analysis in capitalism and slavery for his doctoral thesis at Oxford back in the 30s. Uh, yeah, I promised I would not go on an hour and a half. And ethical leaders try like hell to keep our promises. How to organize? Well, I think the Occupy movement began to give us a clue in that. And Francis Fox Piven, as a labor historian, pointed out that virtually nothing we enjoy in terms of entitlements, in terms of working rights, came out of the beneficence of Congress and the corporations that put them there. Who knows what happened through the 1930s? Strike after strike after strike, occupations of municipal buildings, sit-down strikes. My St. Dorothy Day had herself lifted into the Flint auto plant for their sit-down strike. It was going on the line with sacrifice and struggle that won these vital economic, social, and I'd argue spiritual benefits. And she has challenged us to join with Occupy types yet again in developing that kind of struggle. A clue that it really works is that the Occupy movement really was not repressed in any sort of brutal way until Oakland occupiers joined with Longshoremen and began to deny millions of profits to commercial and shipping interests. Same thread in Long Beach, Port of New York, we had you know, some stirrings in that. That got their attention. 
And then riot police came in and broke up Occupy Encampment after Occupy Encampment. Finally, that wonderful word in the talk, finally, what is our essential spiritual vision? I, I would direct us back to Felix Adler and Anna Garland Spencer, deeply rooted in the progressive era's commitment to working people, to justice and equality at the point that society had developed, supportive of strikes, interestingly, and developing a spiritual grounding for this kind of radical solidarity between middle working and very poor classes that I think at our best we have perpetuated in the ethical movement. And finally, since my son and daughter-in-law tell me they're going to name our grandson Auden, I asked, why not Winston Hugh? They said, Auden is fine. Great poet, great poet. Was a progressive, moved away from that, but kept some of the soul. In his incredible poem, September 1st, 1939, I will close with his ethical injunction. No one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice. We must love each other or die.